0: Now, there are some people who don't believe in miracles, but the Bible records many miracles, strange things that happen apart from logical explanation. Welcome to the Foxton with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone. Well, it's been a while since I last recorded, and the reason why is I got COVID. And that took a lot of energy out of me, and I just wasn't feeling up to recording episodes. So I think I've missed the last couple weeks. For those of you who have faithfully listened to my podcast, I apologize. And hopefully I'm a little more on track now and we'll get back to my consistency. I'm doing great. I'm past COVID. I basically had a temperature that I couldn't break. I didn't really have any of the other symptoms. Eventually I received Regeneron. And then a couple of days later, I had a doctor prescribe several medications to include hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And interestingly enough, within several hours, the fever was gone, never to return. And at this point, my family and I are doing very well. Now that I've given you my update, let's get into the episode. And in today's episode, I want to talk about a miracle that happens every day. Now, there are some people who don't believe in miracles. But the Bible records many miracles, strange things that happen apart from logical explanation. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 5 and following, we find a floating axe head. A man was chopping down a tree with a borrowed axe, and the axe head fell in the water. This man told Elisha what had happened, and he showed him the place where it fell in the water. Elisha cut off a stick and threw it in the water, and it made the iron float. That would be a miracle. Axe heads don't float, they sink. Now, maybe there's lots of questions here. Why is this story in the Bible? What's the significance of the story? Well, we won't go into that in this episode. I just wanted to point out a miracle, something that happens that is counter to what we see in the world around us. Another miracle is the Exodus event. And by this, I don't mean the 10 plagues, even though each one of those would be a miracle in themselves. I'm talking about the people of Israel passing through the Red Sea on dry ground in Exodus 14. Well, at this point, let me give you the context of the story. The people of Israel had been in Egypt for several hundred years, and the Egyptians enslaved them. The people of Israel were the descendants of Abraham, the one who received the initial promise from God. These were God's people through Abraham, or I should say through the promise of God to Abraham. So, God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Ten times Pharaoh refused to do so, even though God sent plagues after each refusal. The tenth plague was the killing of the firstborn of those who did not have their houses marked with blood on the doorposts, and this included Pharaoh's house. So, Pharaoh's firstborn son was killed. So, now finally, Pharaoh lets God's people go. And as the people of Israel fled Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind and he pursued them. When they reached the Red Sea, there was water in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. Now, I hope you see the dilemma here. Imagine the fear they must have had feeling trapped on the bank of the Red Sea as the Egyptian army pursued them. So Moses stretched out his hands over the water and God sent a wind to push the water back, providing a path for the people to walk from one side of the Red Sea to the other. After the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, the Egyptian army pursued them. Moses again stretched out his hands over the sea and the waters returned to normal, destroying the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. That's quite a miracle, isn't it? A major body of water parting to create a path to walk from one side to the other. Now, perhaps we can explain this one through physics. In a lab, it's been demonstrated how a strong wind can push water back. However, I believe the real miracle here is timing. When did this strong wind come? God sent the strong wind when the people were pinned between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. In other words, he pushed the water back with this wind at the exact moment it needed to be sent. And not only that, the wind stopped at the exact moment it needed to stop, thus saving the Israelites and destroying the entire Egyptian army. Jesus himself performed many miracles while he walked on earth. He fed over 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. He turned water into wine. He healed the sick with his words. He raised people from the dead and he himself rose from the dead. Now, these are fairly easy to explain because Jesus is God. Really, for him, these aren't miracles. But for us, these are miracles because these are events that happen outside the norm. For example, nobody turns water into wine. People aren't rising from the dead. So these are miracles. So I've given you a few miracles that we find in the Bible. However, there's another miracle that happens every day. We don't necessarily see this miracle with our eyes. I mean, to some degree we do, but it's not like a floating axe head or a major body of water separating to provide dry ground. This is something that happens spiritually. We can see this miracle over time. It's just not one of those miracles that we see in the moment. Okay, perhaps I'm being too cryptic at this point, so let me cut to the chase. The miracle I'm talking about is how God transforms his enemy into his child. The heart of man is set against God. We are fallen in Adam, and we all have his sin nature. And that means our nature is wholly inclined against God. Our sinful nature is anti-God. By our sinful nature, we hate him and want to destroy him. We actually want to be God ourselves, and really that's the first sin we see in Genesis chapter 3. Now, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that those whose minds that are set on the flesh are hostile to God. Now, that means that every non-believer is hostile to God because their minds are set on the flesh due to their own sin nature. Said another way, their minds are not set on the spirit, and the reason why is they're non-believers. They're spiritually dead. Also, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that sinful man suppresses the truth. Though he knew God, he did not honor him or give him thanks. Jesus even tells us in John chapter 3 that people loved darkness rather than light. We see that in verse 19. And why is this? Because their works are evil. In other words, sinful man hates God, is hostile to God, and there's nothing he can do to change his own sinful heart. Again, Paul tells us that in Romans 8, 7. He also tells us that in 1 Corinthians two fourteen. Now, the truth of the matter is, nobody wants their hearts to be changed. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, all of us would be hostile to God, and we would want it that way. You see, sinful man loves hating God. They don't want to be changed. They love their evil deeds, and they want nothing to do with God. Yet by his grace God does something miraculous. He changes the heart of a person so that they don't hate him, but so that they love him. Now he doesn't do this for every person, but he extends his grace to some and changes their hearts. I explained this in detail in episodes 2 and 5. In episode 2 I talk about the gospel, and in episode 5 I talk about Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. That's where we see God giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Remember, as I said, sinful man cannot change his own heart. There's only one way an enemy of God can change. God must change his heart. Unless God do that, a person will always hate God and will never love him. The miracle here is that God changes his enemy into his child, one who hates him to one who loves and honors him. This is a greater miracle than a floating axe head. This is a greater miracle than turning water into wine. This is a greater miracle than feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. This is a miracle that happens every day, even though we can't see this with our own eyes. In other words, God makes people spiritually alive every day and works in them to love and honor him. Let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul is a key figure in the growth and development of the church. He wrote 13 letters that are included in the New Testament. He wrote from Romans to Philemon. However, before Jesus called him to serve as his messenger, Paul had a different name and a different mission. His name was Saul, and he aggressively sought out the church to destroy it. He was actually present when Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. And according to Acts chapter 8 verse 1, he approved of Stephen's execution. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, says that Saul ravaged the church, entered the homes of Christians, and imprisoned them. Do you see how Saul hated God and his people? Did Saul think he was doing anything wrong? No, he actually believed that he was doing the right thing, but he wasn't doing the right thing. He was attacking God's people. Therefore, he was attacking God. He was spiritually dead and an enemy of God. But take a look at what happens in Acts chapter 9. Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and Jesus knocked him down to the ground with a bright light. Now, let me make sure you understand the timeline here. Many years before this point, Jesus had been crucified and risen from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. I just don't want you to think that Jesus physically knocked Saul to the ground with a sucker punch. Jesus was in heaven when he confronted Saul on his way to Damascus. So from heaven, Jesus asks Saul why he's persecuting him. So notice that when people persecute the church, they're persecuting Jesus. The church is his body. And Saul responds with, Who are you, Lord? This seems to confirm that Saul doesn't know who Jesus is. Therefore, he's not a believer in Christ. Jesus further confirms this by telling Saul who he is. Jesus then gives Saul instructions to go to Damascus. From this point on, Saul is a new man. At first, he persecuted Christ's church. Now here, he obeyed God and in time became a messenger of Jesus, writing 13 letters in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul. You see, we see a transition here. Paul changes from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian. This is the conversion of Saul, who became Paul. Do you see the miracle here? Remember, Paul was incapable of changing his own heart. He hated God and would always hate God unless God intervened. Now he was a messenger of Christ, doing God's work. This is the miracle, God changing his enemy into his child. Well What does that miracle look like in you? Well, if you're not a believer in Christ, you still hate God. You might not believe me. You may think that you love him. However, if you love God, you will believe him. He says that you're sinful and deserve his wrath, and he also says that Jesus is the only Savior of God's people. So he calls you to depend on Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, and when you do, you will be saved. If you reject this and try to appease God with your own good works, you're an enemy of God because you don't believe what he says to be true. If you do believe you're sinful to the core and deserve God's condemnation and you trust in Christ's perfect work— and you trust in Christ as your only hope and the perfect sacrifice, then you're a believer in Christ. And if you're a believer in Christ, God has transformed you from his enemy into his child. You see, if you're a believer in Christ, the miracle has already happened to you, and you did nothing to make this miracle happen. Now, maybe you're saying, I didn't see the miracle take place in me, this transformation. One day I didn't trust in Jesus, then the next day I did. So how did you come to this point? The Bible says you're incapable of doing so on your own. Why? You have Adam's nature. You hate God. You want nothing to do with him. You would never depend on Jesus because, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 19, we love darkness. We love evil. The only explanation is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were spiritually dead, but God made you spiritually alive. And this, by his grace alone, you had nothing to do with it. You were merely a passive recipient. So though you can't see the moment the miracle occurred, you see the fruit of the miracle. At one time, you hated the things of God, but over time, you grew to love the things of God. I've seen the transformation in my own life, but I've never seen the moment the miracle occurred. I've been a believer in Christ since 1983. Since then, I've sinned many times every single day, in thought, word, and deed. And I won't stop sinning till I die. Now, you can listen to episode 12, where I discuss this in full. But I'm not the same guy I was in 1982. Now, sure, I've matured, I've grown in age and life experience. We all have. However, in 1982, I loved wickedness and I mocked the things of God. Today, I'm an ordained minister who loves to tell others about the grace of God in Christ. Now, please don't be confused. I'm not suggesting you have to be an ordained minister. That's not my point. I'm merely giving you an example of how God has shifted me from one point on the spectrum to the other. Can I see the exact moment the miracle occurred? Nope. But I can see the results over a long period of time. Now, perhaps you're thinking... I struggle with sin. In fact, I find myself enjoying sinful things and not always appreciating the things of God. I got it. Again, first, listen to episode 12. Our sinful hearts are always drawn away from God. This is why you rest in the grace of God and the work of Christ, and you don't rest in your own works. In fact, your own works are not a means of appeasing God. They are means by which you say thank you to God. The Christian life is like pushing water uphill. Though you attempt to push it uphill, its natural tendency is to follow gravity. The water will naturally flow downhill, and oftentimes you can't control it because it's fluid, it moves around your hand, it slips through your fingers. Second, the key word is struggle. You struggle with sin. And the fact that you struggle with sin is an indication that you're a believer. If you were satisfied with your sin and had no desire to love God and honor him, then I would suggest you're a non-believer and an enemy of God. Maybe you're concerned because you're not going to church. Well, I can say church attendance is not a requirement to be a Christian. Now, with that said, I believe you should be part of a church, and I explain why in episodes 23 and 26. The church is merely the people of God who gather to worship him, hear the voice of Christ, and grow in relationship with one another. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, gives us a good description of what the church did shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven. Now here's the real challenge for many of you. Not all churches are real churches. Many churches are actually false churches. Just because a church calls itself a church doesn't make it a true church. If I dress up as Santa and call myself Santa, am I really Santa? Furthermore, I know that some of you are not attending church because there's not really a good church in your area. I actually think this is a good thing. I don't recommend going to a church just for the sake of going to a church. You have to be very careful because many churches are actually leading people astray. In cases like this, I would find a solid church online and tune into their worship service every Sunday. This isn't ideal, but I think it's acceptable when there's not a good church to join in your area. Okay, so I'm getting way off topic at this point, but I can see that I've probably created questions I need to answer here. What should you look for in a church? Well, don't look at music. Don't look at the charisma of the pastor. Don't look how big the church is. Does it have a lot of people? Don't look at those things. Don't look to see if it has a good youth program, good children's program, men's ministries, women's ministries, other kinds of ministries. Listen, first of all, is what comes from the pulpit. When you listen to the sermons, do you hear more about what you're supposed to do for God? Or do you hear more about what God has done to you, for you, and in you in Christ? I would say stay away from the first church and consider the second one. Again, I explain this in detail in episodes 23 and 26. There's more to say here, but I'll stop for now. Now let me conclude with this. If you're a believer in Christ, you're the passive recipient of the miracle of God. He transformed his enemy into his child. And with that in mind, I encourage you to take time this week and humbly give thanks to God for this amazing miracle that happened to you. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening, and remember, faith comes by hearing.